0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter twenty three. Luke twenty three, verses forty four to forty seven. Luke twenty three, forty four to forty seven. Luke twenty three, verse forty four. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, who's in heaven, you are our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? Though a host should arise against us, though enemies should encamp against us, whom shall we fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? One thing we have asked of the Lord, that we would behold the beauty of the Lord in the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this one thing this morning, that as we approach the cross, we would not view it from a distance, but we would draw near to the cross. That we would be in the shadow of the cross. That we would be beneath the cross to behold the wonder, the beauty, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Human history is filled with memorable events. The history of the world is filled with unforgettable, significant, and important events. For instance, here is a list of some of the most important, significant events in human history. Circa 3500 BC, the wheel is invented in Mesopotamia. 1600 BC, the concept of the alphabet is invented. 753 BC, a tiny little city is founded on a river at that time known as Roma. Rome. In the year 327 BC, Alexander the Great's empire reached India. AD 105, the first use of modern paper. AD 730, printing was invented in China. 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue and discovers the new world, America. 1776, the Declaration of Independence was written. 1918, the First World War ends. 1945, the Second World War ends. 2018, LeBron James signs with the Lakers. (laughs) These are some of the most memorable moments of human history. But which one of these is the most important moment in human history? Which one of these is the most significant moment in human history? Well, brethren, I submit to you that the most crucial, most significant, most important moment in human history is not found in history books. It is hardly esteemed by scholars. It is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The two aspects, crucifixion and resurrection, must be mentioned together. They go hand in hand with one another. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have crucifixion without resurrection, and you cannot have resurrection without crucifixion. They must be mentioned in the same breath. For the purpose of this morning, I would like to focus on the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the most important event in human history. The cross of Christ is the peak, the climax, the apex of all of redemptive history. The cross is where our sin met God's wrath so that we could be saved. The cross is the greatest display of the glorious grace of Almighty God. The cross is the foundation of the gospel. Now one of you might say to me, and fairly so, wow, you have chosen a really dark moment as the center of human history. And to some extent, you're right. The cross is a dark moment. In fact, I dare say it is the darkest moment. The cross is the worst crime ever committed. It is worse than the Holocaust. It is worse than the killing fields of Khmer Rouge. It is worse than Darfur. It is worse than 9-11. Now, do not get me wrong. I am not belittling these tragedies. They are amazingly heartbreaking. But they are not as wicked, they are not as evil as the crucifixion of the Son of God, the Lord of glory. The creator, crucified by his creation. The holy, innocent Lamb of God, tried as a criminal, dying on a cross. Now, that... Is wicked. That is evil. So, from an outside perspective, you might be tempted to think that God has lost control at the cross. In fact, it is the darkest moment, is it not? Was the cross an afterthought? Was the cross a mistake? Is it the best that God could do to salvage a situation gone wrong? Did God lose control at the cross? The answer is no. Acts 2.23 says very clearly, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God makes very clear that he was in complete sovereign control of all the events surrounding the cross. Jesus Christ makes very clear that he was in complete sovereign control of all the events surrounding his own death. God did not lose control at the cross. In fact, God was working to take the darkest moment in human history, the worst crime in human history. God was working to make it the most glorious event in human history. Our passage, Luke 23, 44-47 demonstrates God's sovereignty in Christ's cross. Our passage shows us four ways the cross of Christ demonstrates the sovereignty of God. The first way that the cross of Christ demonstrates sovereignty of God is the powers of nature. The powers of nature, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured according to mark 15 25 it was the third hour when they crucified jesus so the crucifixion began at nine in the morning at 9 a.m so at this point in our text jesus has been hanging on that cross gasping for air suspended between heaven and earth for over three hours when darkness visited israel at noon midday 12 p.m., the sixth hour, darkness fell over the whole land for three hours. Darkness fell over the whole land, meaning this darkness does not discriminate. Jew or Gentile, male or female, adult, child, it doesn't matter. Everyone was obscured in darkness. Now, what caused this darkness? Well, Luke says, because the sun was obscured. Well, the word obscured is a klepo, from which we get the word eclipse. But actually, it's a, a very difficult word to translate. The King James Version says, the sun was darkened. The Amplified Bible says, the sun's light faded. The NIV reads, the sun stopped shining. The ESV says, the sun's light failed a lot of different translations. The reason it is so difficult to translate is not because we don't know what a eclebo means. We know what it means. It's because we don't actually know what happened that day. What actually happened that day? Did God cause the sun to cease shining? Did the sun's light fail? Or did God obscure the sun? Did he eclipse the sun? Did God, as it were, put his hand over the sun to block its light? We don't actually know. All that we do know is that God brought this darkness. This is an unnatural darkness. A supernatural darkness. A God-wrought darkness. Actually, Fullerton is not unlike the climate of Israel. It is hot, Deserty, dry. Now, instead of being in here, just imagine, instead of being in the nice air-conditioned room, and praise God for air-conditioning, we are all standing outside in the parking lot. Noonday sun, blazing in its heat, beating down on us, just really, really bright. When all of a sudden, at the blink of an eye, at the snap of a finger, in an instant, darkness, darkness, black, for three hours in the middle of the day, in the summer in Fullerton. That's what happened that day, for three hours. In the darkness, God was visiting in the form of judgment. Darkness represents the judgment of God. In Exodus 10.23, God brings judgment upon the land of Egypt. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Three days. Interesting. There was darkness at the cross for three hours. Jesus was in the grave for three days. Three days. Interesting. I'm just saying. Just saying. Amos 8.9. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Make the sun go down at noon? Make the earth dark in broad daylight? Sound familiar? Interesting. Interesting. This is divine wrath played out before us. John MacArthur says, what's happening here is divine wrath is being poured out in its final form." Eternal wrath is about to be released, and the darkness is everywhere. God brought hell to Jerusalem that day. God unleashed the full extent of his theory on Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God brought hell to Jerusalem that day. God brought hell to Golgotha that day. God brought hell to Calvary that day. But did God bring hell upon fallen angels? Did God bring hell upon those who crucified his son? Did God bring hell upon wrath-deserving sinners like you and me? No. God brought hell upon the son of God. God brought hell upon the holy, innocent, righteous lamb of God. God brought hell upon Jesus Christ and him crucified. Calvin says this about the darkness. It ought also to be of advantage to us by informing us that the sacrifice by which we are redeemed was as important as if the sun had fallen from heaven or if the whole fabric of the world had fallen to pieces. For this will excite in us a deeper horror at our sins. Brethren, this is the price of our sin. This is the cost of our sin. Are you horrified yet? Our sins are so ugly, they are so horrific, that when God judged them in Christ, it was as if the sun had fallen from heaven. Our sins are so horrific that when God judged them in Christ, it was as if the whole world had fallen to pieces. God brought hell upon the utterly innocent Jesus for utterly sinful people. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and by his scourging, we are healed. Brethren, we deserve this judgment. That was our darkness, not his. That was our judgment, not his. That was our hell, not his. God brought hell to Jerusalem that day so that we could be brought to heaven. God brought darkness to Jerusalem that day so that we could be brought to the light. 1 Peter 2.9 says, God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1.12-13 says, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He who dwells in unapproachable light was cast into darkness so that we who were sitting in darkness could live in the light. Brothers and sisters, God used the darkness to lift our darkness. God used the darkness of the cross to bring us to the light. The second way in which God demonstrates his sovereignty in Christ's cross is the provision of access, the provision of access. Look at the end of verse 45. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. The veil of the temple here refers to the curtain, which separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies, as you know, was the innermost part of the temple where the glory of God dwelt, where God himself dwelt, the Shekinah glory of God, as we talked about in the second hour last week. So the veil represents a separation from God. This is a barrier, barrier between God and man. There was no access to the Holy of Holies. There was no access to God. This is the final barrier, the final separation between God and man. Leviticus 16 tells us that only the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, could enter the Holy of Holies, and he had to do it to bring an animal sacrifice for sin. The high priest had to bring just the right sacrifice, just the right way, on just the right day. And if he didn't do it right, he died. Struck dead by the holiness of God. Simple as that. So over a thousand years, there stood this veil, this curtain, made of fine Babylonian cloth, Of purple, scarlet, and blue weaved together to represent man's separation from God. It was so thick, it was almost soundproof. But all of a sudden, at the death of Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Parallel passage in Matthew 27 51 says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Now, that's important, because the idea is that the veil was torn from the top down, from top to bottom, not from the bottom up. Say there was a curtain, which separates the stage from the rest of the main sanctuary, and it stretched all the way from the top of the ceiling to the floor. If you were going to tear that veil, that curtain, you would come and you would tear it from the bottom up not from the top down, because you couldn't even get to the top. But on this day of crucifixion, the veil of the temple was torn from the top down, from top to bottom. It was torn from heaven to earth, not the other way around. God tore that veil. It was God who tore that veil. It was the hand of God who tore that veil from the top down, from the top to the bottom. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, God himself removes the barrier between God and man. Jesus is the only sacrifice we need to get into the Holy of Holies. Brothers and sisters, we can enter the holy place because of the sacrifice of Christ. And we no longer have to bring an animal sacrifice. Can you imagine that? Every Sunday morning, you're getting ready to go to church. Honey! Honey! got to get to church. We're going to be late. Okay, yeah, yeah. Can you get the kids ready? I'm getting the goat ready. I'm getting the bull ready. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to bring a sacrifice because Jesus Christ is your sacrifice. Jesus Christ is your way into the holy of holies. In that instant, when the veil of the temple was torn in two, the entire Levitical system was obliterated. The entire Levitical priesthood Was done away with. All the animal sacrifices, all the bloodshed for over a thousand years was done away with. It was obliterated, it is gone, it is done, it is obsolete. The new covenant is now in effect because of the death of Christ. And he is making the old covenant obsolete. Hebrews 8:13 said, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. The temple itself is now obsolete because Ephesians 2:21 says that you, O church, are the holy temple of the Lord. Levitical priesthood is now obsolete because 1 Peter 2:9 says, "You, O church, are a royal high are a royal priest." The high priest himself is obsolete because now we have Jesus, our own high priest. Hebrews 9.11 says Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. The old covenant is obsolete. It is done away with. It is gone. And God left no doubt when he allowed Rome to destroy the temple in 70 AD. God left no doubt. By tearing the veil in two, God provided access to himself for all those who believe. Heaven is opening. The throne room of God is opening. And we have access. We have access into the Holy of Holies. We have access into the Holy Place. We have access into the Holy Sanctum, the inner sanctum. We have access into the inner ring. When I was in med school, I met a friend of a friend and this man was bent on getting into med school. He was obsessed with getting into med school. He had taken the MCAT twice and he had failed to get in and he was taking it a third time. So I was talking to him one day, just asking him why he was so intent on getting into med school. We were talking and he finally said, because when I get in, I'll know that I finally made it. I'll get in." I told him, well, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> At the time, I thought I understood him, that when he was talking about getting in, he was talking about getting into med school. But now I think I really understand him when he was talking about getting in. You see, what this man is talking about is something that is common to all of us. We, we all go through this. We all understand this. What he was talking about was not just getting into med school. What he was talking about was access. He wanted access into the ideal, the exclusive. He wanted access into the dream, the obsession. He had built his entire identity around being on the inside. He had built his entire identity around access. C.S. Lewis called this the quest for the inner ring. Lewis says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life, from the moment you enter your profession until you are too old to care. And as long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. The quest of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. We all understand the inner ring. We have all yearned for the inner ring. Every junior higher wanting to be in the popular crowd. Every high schooler yearning to be on the varsity team. Every college student dying to get into their dream grad school. Every person killing himself or herself at work for that promotion. What is that? It's all the quest for the inner ring. Sometimes the goal isn't even a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing. But when you become obsessed with the goal, when you build your entire identity around being on the inside, When you build your entire self-worth around the pursuit of that goal, it's no longer about the goal. It's no longer about the varsity team or the grad school or the promotion. It's about access, access into the inner ring, access into the dream, the obsession. But when the veil of the temple was torn in two, you received access into the only inner ring that matters. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You received access into the greatest inner ring of them all. You are loved and accepted by God Himself. And when you know that you're that loved, that accepted, it destroys your need to seek any other inner ring. How can you know? that you are indeed on the inside? How can you know that you are indeed in the greatest inner ring of them all? Because the veil of the temple was torn in two. Brothers and sisters, break the quest for the inner ring before the inner ring breaks you. The third way the cross of Christ demonstrates the sovereignty of God is, third, the peculiarity of Christ's death the peculiarity of Christ's death, verse 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. At this point, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for over three hours. He is mocked, he is humiliated, he is beaten, he is scourged, and he cries out. Actually, the word should be, he screamed, he yelled. It is much more intense than crying out. And you might be tempted to think, at this moment, Jesus has cracked. He's lost it. He's lost control. He's lost his mind. But actually, every aspect of this verse argues otherwise. This entire verse drips with the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. Luke writes, Jesus crying out with a loud voice. When people were executed by crucifixion, they were suffocated to death. They were asphyxiated to death. They were nailed to the cross in such a way as to hyperextend the chest muscles, which made it very difficult to breathe. So in order to breathe... The crucified would try to lift themselves up with their hands or push themselves up by their feet, which, of course, would cause excruciating pain. And when they could no longer lift themselves up or push themselves up, they could no longer breathe, and so they suffocated to death. It was death by exhaustion, death by pain, death by suffocation. And as you can imagine, at the end of this cycle of fighting for their lives, they were wiped out. They were exhausted. They couldn't even find the air to breathe, let alone find the air to speak. In The famous words of the poet T.S. Eliot, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Crucified people die not with a bang, but a whimper. Crucified people die with a whisper, but not Jesus. Jesus doesn't die with a whimper. Jesus doesn't die with a whisper. Jesus dies by crying out with a loud voice. A.W. Pink says Do these words not tell us that the Savior was not exhausted by what he had passed through? Do they not intimate that his strength had not failed him, that he was still master of himself, that instead of being conquered by death, he was but yielding himself to it? That's right. Jesus was not powerless at the cross. Jesus was not overcome by darkness. Jesus was not defeated by Satan. The Son of God does not die unless he wants to die. We can also see the sovereignty of Jesus Christ by what he cries out. He cries, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here, as you know, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. But the interesting thing is, is that Jesus doesn't quote the whole verse. The second half of Psalm 31, verse 5 reads, You have redeemed me, O Lord. Jesus doesn't quote the second half of the verse because he doesn't need to be redeemed. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus avoids the part of the verse that doesn't apply to him. Despite the pain and the agony, Jesus is fulfilling scripture with incredible accuracy. He is fulfilling scripture with divine precision. Luke goes on to write, the end of verse 46, having said this, he breathed his last. In the parallel passage in Matthew 27.50, Matthew tells us that Jesus yielded up his spirit. So if you put the two together, Jesus breathed his last while he yielded up his spirit. And he did it perfectly. He timed it perfectly. Luke writes, having said this, he breathed his last. This is dying on cue. This is unique. This is peculiar. This is one of a kind. People die, but people don't die like this. Personally speaking, I've had the privilege of being at the deathbed of many, many people. I've pronounced probably more than 30 people dead. I've seen a lot of people die. I've seen people struggle to die. I've seen people die peacefully. I've seen people take a long time to die. I've seen people die quickly. People die. But people don't die like this. Nobody dies like Jesus died. I can't yield up my spirit, can you? Jesus was in complete control over his own death. Jesus said in John 10, 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus died by his own initiative. Jesus has the power and the authority to die however he wants, whenever he wants, and wherever he wants. As you know, in the secular world, the Gospels are met with a lot of skepticism. Most secular scholars believe that the Gospels are full of myth. They're just made-up stories by Jesus' followers. They're not historical. They're not reliable. They're not real. These things didn't really happen. But interestingly enough, a lot of scholars, even secular scholars, believe that the crucifixion actually did happen. This is the way the thinking goes. If you were making up a religion, if you were starting a religion... You would never allow the founder of that religion to die on a cross. Look at the founders of other religions Buddha, Muhammad, they all die in peace with wisdom on their lips. But Jesus, dying on a cross, screaming out in agony? To crucify the founder of a religion is so humiliating, so outrageous that no one would ever dare to dream that up. And so the thinking goes, this actually must have happened. Because according to secular scholars, that's not the way to start a religion, that's the way to end a religion. But that's where they're wrong. The cross is not the end. It's only the beginning. The cross is the beginning of the Christian life. The cross is what it means to follow Jesus. Luke 9, 23-24 says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. The cross is what it means to be a Christian. To take up your cross, that's what it means to be a Christian. There are very few Who understand this, who have ever understood this, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who lived during the Second World War. He pastored a small confessing church and he was a professor at an underground seminary during the reign of the Nazis. Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler and he opposed the Jewish genocide. He spoke out against Hitler. He was part of the Protestant resistance movement. In 1943, Hitler's secret police arrested Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They put him in prison for a year and a half before transferring him to a concentration camp. Bonhoeffer wrote one of the most powerful, most challenging, and I thought a long time about this for the right word about this book, and the best word I could come up with is it is the most jarring book you will ever read called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer said this about the essence of the Christian life. Bonhoeffer said, The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Bonhoeffer lived what he wrote. He walked the walk, he walked the talk. He picked up his cross and followed Jesus. In 1945, just days before the American liberation of the camp, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged at Flossenburg. These were his last words before his death. This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. This is what it means to be a Christian. To die to yourself and to live for Christ. To die to your own will and live for Christ. Either you die to your sins now and live eternally with Christ, or you will live in your sins now and die eternally in hell. You see, the thing is, about carrying a cross, is it's noticeable. It's noticeable. It makes you different from those around you who are not carrying a cross. People want a religion that doesn't change the way they live, but Jesus will have none of it. You cannot meet Jesus Christ without truly being changed. You cannot meet Jesus Christ and become a disciple of Christ without truly being changed. You cannot pick up your cross daily without truly being changed. Carrying a cross is not just an add-on. It's not just a hobby. Nobody carries a cross as a hobby. That's not a hobby. Carrying a cross is a life of discipleship. It is a life of dying to yourself and following Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. So, brothers and sisters, have you been carrying your cross lately? Is it noticeable? Are you carrying a cross in your marriage? Are you carrying a cross at work? Are you carrying a cross in your credit card? Or in your checkbook? Are you carrying a cross in what you watch on TV? Are you carrying a cross in your internet search? Are you carrying a cross in your dating relationship? Are you taking up your cross daily and following him? What aspect of your life have you been keeping from the cross of Christ? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Jesus Christ. Are you picking up your cross? Fourth and last, the last way that the cross of Christ demonstrates the sovereignty of God is the praise of the centurion. The praise of the centurion, verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. This is Scripture's first response to the cross of Christ, given by a Gentile, no less. A centurion was the official Roman title of a soldier who was in charge of 100 other soldiers. The 100 other soldiers were known as a century, and the, hence the centurion was in charge of the century. In this kind of situation, the centurion would have been in charge of the crucifixion. He would have had a front row seat to all the events. So the centurion is watching this whole thing unfold, and Luke says, when he saw what had happened. Mark 15, 39 spells it out for us. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last. Surely the centurion had seen many people die. He'd seen many people crucified. But like we said, nobody dies like Jesus died. The way Jesus died was just different, unique, unnatural, supernatural. And amazingly, as he watched Jesus die, the centurion began praising God. He was worshiping God. And he was saying, certainly this man is innocent. The centurion affirms Jesus' righteous character. He was saying, Jesus didn't deserve to die. He was righteous. He was innocent. This is the seventh confession of Jesus' innocence in the whole chapter. Seven, of course, being the number of perfection. Luke 23 contains seven testimonies that Jesus Christ is, in fact, innocent. Luke 23.4, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23.14, Pilate says again, I have found no guilt in this man. Luke 23.15, twice confirms Jesus' innocence. Herod sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate again, Luke 23.22, I have found in him no guilt demanding death. The thief on the cross says in Luke 23.41, this man has done nothing wrong. And finally, the confession of the centurion. If you ever wanted to prove Jesus' innocence, just ask the people who crucified him. If you ever wanted to prove the innocence of Jesus Christ, just ask the people who killed him. Certainly, this man was innocent. But that's not all that Centurion says. Matthew 27, 54, he says, Truly, this was the Son of God. The soldier not only realizes that Jesus Christ was innocent, he realizes that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. This is the Son of God. And he began praising God. He began worshiping God. Now, I may be going out on a limb here, but I'm not alone in this. I believe that the centurion was saved that day. He was converted that day. He witnessed Jesus Christ dying on a cross, and he believed. He confessed what he believed, and he turned into a worshiper of God. Oh, Cornerstone, Christ did not lose control at the cross. God did not lose control at the cross. No, rather the cross of Christ demonstrates the sovereignty of God. You can see the entire work of the Godhead on that fateful day at Calvary. The entire Trinity was at work. God the Father was sovereignly controlling the powers of nature and the veil of the temple. Christ the Son was dictating his own death, and God the Spirit was convicting hearts and saving souls. The cross of Christ demonstrates the sovereignty It is well known in church history that the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. But what is not well known is that Peter's wife was crucified with him. As part of Peter's torture, they crucified his wife before his very eyes. As part of Peter's torture, he had to watch his wife being martyred. And as his wife was being nailed to her cross, it is said that Peter said to her these very simple words, Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you remembered the Lord? When was the last time you remembered cross of Christ? When was the last time you thought of and contemplated the greatest event in human history? When was the last time you remembered Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice on our behalf? In a few moments, just after the break, we will be celebrating communion, the bread and the cup. We have the perfect opportunity to remember the Lord. So as you take the bread and drink the cup today, I urge you, remember the Lord. Remember the cross of Christ. Remember Jesus Christ and him crucified on your behalf. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, all we have is Christ. He is our all in all. We owe everything to Jesus Christ. Lord, as we ponder and consider and remember the cross of Christ, help us to pick up our own cross, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, and to follow him. In a few moments, as we take of the bread and the cup, let us feast upon Christ, spiritually to feast upon him, and spiritually, as it were, to drink of the blood of Christ and receive spiritual nourishment. Lord, help us even as we take the bread and the cup. May you draw near to us, convict us of sin, convict us of our own selfishness, and let us follow Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.